Do have your Bibles open there to Luke 10 as we dive into God's Word. That's going to be a really great way to help you follow along with what's being said, especially since I'm getting really excited about preaching this parable, so I'm probably going to talk too quickly at some point, so follow along, but do forgive me if I do. Essentially, this morning, we are going to go through a list of characters to see what Jesus is saying before thinking about that, about what that means for us. So if you hate three-point sermons, then this one's for you. Let's look at our first character to start, the expert in the law. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So here he is, he, he seems respectful, he stood up, but unlike the rich young man who, who later in Luke asks the same question, desperately wanting to know the way to life, here the expert stands up to test Jesus. And he does that by asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you take notes, put a, put a big box around that because this is the context for the whole parable. And we're not going to understand what comes next without reference to this question. Because the question here, it's not just pulled from the expert's head. It's the most important question, the, the question that's, that has framed rabbis' ministries at the time. So it's, it's probably something that, that Jesus has faced himself as he's traveled about. And, and in fact, his answer is probably something that the expert already knew. You see, the, the initial stage here is just a warm-up. They all knew what was going on. Jesus was obviously going to go back to the law. And the expert was obviously going to answer with the Shema, this, this prayer that every Jew knew by heart. It's the second question in verse 29 where we get his real test. Who is my neighbor? And there's two really important things that we need to understand here. Firstly, the assumption of the expert. Notice that what his question does is assume that there are a group of people who aren't his neighbor. And so, by implication, a group of people that he does not have to love as himself. Can you see the attempt here to, to restrict and to narrow down the command? He's looking for minimal obedience, a low bar so that he is able to stand confident in his own works, in his personal righteousness. That's his assumption. The second thing to note down is his intent. You see, at the time, there was this debate in the Jewish circles about who exactly was a neighbor. Some assumed that it was just the, the Israelites, so they would only need to love the, the ethnic Jewish. Others were more lenient and said that they could also love people of other ethnicities as long as they became Jewish. And so likely, the, the expert was getting Jesus to, to weigh into that debate, confident that whatever side that Jesus fell on, he's already covered. Remember that he is an expert in the law. He's an intelligent man. So he's got this exchange all planned out. Here's how it should have gone. He asks Jesus, who is righteous? Jesus says, the one who loves like this. Then he replies that he has done that. And so Jesus will be forced in front of everyone to declare that this man is righteous. And they would all look to him as a role model. 
And so not only would the, the expert be, be safe in his own assurance of his own goodness, but everyone else would know it too. It's crafty, isn't it? Verse 29 is, is more literal than we might first expect. He really is trying to justify himself. If you go through, look, that's a, that's a theme with the religious leaders in, in this gospel. So it's really important for us to get it right. The expert is trying to present himself as a righteous man who will inherit eternal life because of how good he is. And he's trying to get public acknowledgement of his own merit. But instead of falling into that trap, Jesus does something different. And so as we get into the parable, keep in mind that the assumptions and the intent of the expert, because that is specifically what Jesus is speaking to. And so we move on to our next character. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, we don't know much about the, the man, but, but there are a couple of things thrown in there that would, would make us assume certain things. Firstly, notice he's, he's coming down from Jerusalem. And that's kind of language that's mostly associated with, with pilgrims coming back from the temple. And so, although it's not explicit, that's, that's probably where the listener's mind would have gone to. And that would have made them think of this man as, as a good man, someone who has just been made right with God, not someone who deserves this beating. The other thing to note was that he was stripped naked. So yes, we can think these are particularly cruel robbers, but think about it. It also means that passersby would have known that he was Jewish because of his circumcision. And so because he's Jewish, he would be entitled to certain claims on them. Okay, so here we are. The scene is set that the problem to be resolved is before us. And then in verse 31, a priest comes along. If you're reading carefully, you'll notice as well that he's coming down from Jerusalem as well. Right. Bit of background. At the time, there were so many priests that they, they served on this kind of rota. They, they would come from far away and work for a bit in the temple, and then they would head home. So this priest is, is probably leaving the temple after performing his, his priestly duties of, of mediating between God and man. And so after all that symbolism about bringing man and God together, about standing in the gap for his people, here he has an opportunity to do just that. And he rejects it. He's more concerned about his own personal holiness than in ministering to the people of God. After all that enacting of the, the ministering of grace to the people, he is unwilling to do something that might compromise his own standing. And so we should hear the echo of the expert in the law already trying to justify himself. Instead of seeing the priest as being righteous, what we are struck with is the, the callousness of the priest as he just passes by on the other side. And if we're thinking carefully, we should also see the contrast between our great high priest who did come down for us, who didn't pass us by. Jesus moves on, though, verse 32. So too a Levite passed him by. 
Now, the, the Levites were like a, a second order of clergy. So the, if you think the priests served God and the Levites served the priests. But, but together in, in literature, they form this ultimate in-group. They guarded the temple courts. So, so to get to God, you went through them. This was the group that could stand before God, but being shown to have no righteousness to see. So remember, the people are still thinking, and they're listening on and thinking about the question, who is my neighbor? And, and clearly here, Jesus is building to something, but, but for them, they're probably still confused. The people that they followed, that, that they thought were going to be held up as examples to follow, they've let them down. And this illusion of personal righteousness is torn down by their actions here. What could Jesus be up to? Now, we know, we know the next character, but before we think about the Samaritan, it's, it's important to note that, that a common symbol of, of Israel as a nation was this threefold grouping of the priests, Levites, and all the people. So notice that Jesus doesn't use the scribes and the Pharisees in his parable. Jesus uses priests and Levites to get people to assume that the next person coming along, the, the person that's going to complete this grouping of the people of God would be an Israelite. And note that down if you can, because the arrival of the Samaritan, it, it might have made them think, like, oh, things are about to get worse here, like, like a bad guy has come on the scene. But more likely, it's going to have confused them. Why is this guy the one completing the picture, the, the shorthand for the people of God? And we, we know the Jews and Samaritans, they, they hated each other. And over the years, preachers have used this verse to get us to think, who is our enemy? Should we substitute in here the, the kind banker, the, the compassionate politician, the, the understanding terrorist? One commentator I read wondered if, if anyone has ever told the story of the noble Israeli to some Palestinians. But having this man complete the picture of the people of God means that it's more than just loving our enemies. It requires us to look at him and wonder, what is going on here? At the time, the, the, the Jews, they had used other words for Samaritans, common insults that implied that they were idolaters, they were serving other gods. But the Samaritans themselves, they, they claimed to follow the law of Moses. They claimed to worship the true God. And so, in introducing the man as a Samaritan and, and not entering into the derogatory terminology of the day, Jesus shows us that, that this man he's talking about, he's not a pagan. He viewed himself as being under the law. And the reason why that is really important is because it means that what we're talking about here is not natural law. We aren't talking about a, a natural reaction of a really kind person here. Instead, we are talking about someone who is following the Mosaic law, someone whose heart is molded by the Word of God. What I'm trying to say is that we shouldn't see the Samaritan as an example to follow because he's so good, but because he has been transformed by the Word. 
Look at what the Samaritan does in verse 34. Firstly, he, he bandaged the wounds. And, and that's imagery used of God when he acts to save people in, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And then he goes and he pours on oil and wine. Oil and wine, they're, they're key elements in temple worship. And, and we've already been primed to, to think about the temple with, with the setting, with the priest and the Levite. And so what are we to think here? Micah 6 says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The priest and the Levite here had already brought the correct offerings before God. The expert of the law was trying to show that, that he had completed what the Lord requires of men. But Jesus images the Samaritan as the one who is offering true worship. He has been transformed and so doesn't seek to justify himself or, or preserve his own personal status. Instead, he walks humbly with his God. He loves mercy and acts justly because God has transformed his heart. And so here, the, the true worshiper, the one who became the neighbor to the man, the one who completes the picture of the people of God, is one who has nothing to boast in. One who had no righteousness of his own, no family line to cling to, no standing. The others held themselves up as, as righteous and Jesus shows them how broken they are. This man is portrayed as having no righteousness of his own and yet Jesus holds him up. I can just imagine the crowd to be, to be dead silent. The expert silently fuming. And now, now for us, when we read this without any cultural baggage, we, we see the Samaritan here as the hero, and we identify with him. And so it's really easy to read this and think, I need to go and do what the Samaritan does. He's a good lad. I should act like him. But the original hearers certainly wouldn't have identified with the Samaritan. They wouldn't have placed themselves in his shoes like we do. The only person left for them to think that they could be was the man in the ditch. Notice, he's the only one in this whole parable who can ask, like the expert does, who is my neighbor? So often our, our problem is that we don't depend upon God because we, we don't feel like we need to. Nice homes good jobs, life ticking along well. But when we are the ones looking up from the ditch, when all hope of accomplishing anything on our own is gone, all we can do in that moment is to receive grace. And all we can do is depend upon God. 
You think, what must the beaten man do here? Nothing. Nothing. He does nothing. He just receives mercy. He receives grace. His wounds are healed. His circumstances transformed. His future is secure. Grace upon grace. And he doesn't know any of it. We take on such a burden trying to earn grace. And it is devastating to hope and trust in our own performance and capacity. But it is sweet to hear someone say, I can't hold on to him, but he is holding on to me. I can't tell you how often that I need to hear of God's mercy. To be reminded that however I am messing up, his mercy is more. It's more than sufficient. That he is pursuing me, extending grace when I am at the end of my tether. I need to to know that, that we are not performing for God, but he is at work in us. And so if you're a mother and the, the kids are taking it out of you and you feel like you aren't doing a good job, or, or if you're the man trying to provide for his family, but the cost of living and, and bills just make that so difficult and you feel like you're failing, or you're recently retired and, and searching for meaning, or, or the teenager who feels like you can never measure up, then know that your felt reality is not how God looks at you. He isn't waiting for you to get your life together. He has already accepted you. And in resting in him, that's how all this other stuff is going to come together. Not getting yourself out of the situation, but trusting in God. The bitter taste of having to trust in God rather than secure his own salvation is too much for the expert of the law here. In verse 37, notice he can't even mention the Samaritan's name. He can't begin to understand that that we don't need to hold ourselves up when we look to God for our righteousness. That the Samaritan offers better worship because he simply allows God to mold his heart. But Jesus is relentless with him. What must you do? Go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. Not by taking on this huge burden of of finding people out in the Jericho Road. That would just be giving the expert more grounds to trust in his own achievements. But be like the Samaritan in allowing the word to mold you. How will he inherit eternal life? How will we? By being transformed by the word rather than using it to justify ourselves. And it's in that transformation that we're able to live in a way that shares love with all. Live a life worthy of the gospel. That's what we want to do, isn't it? And that can mean trying for for personal holiness, and we should be doing that. But living a life worthy of the gospel can also look like an abiding sense of wonder that we have been saved. That we are constantly reminded of God's kindness to us who don't deserve it. A a humility that that shapes all that we do. A, A humility that allows us to enter into the pain and suffering of a stranger. To set aside our personal status. To extend grace 
to others, a humility that allows us to reach out a hand knowing that we are broken and that we need help. Our Northern Irish culture says, be strong, don't reach out. We're all okay, we're fine. But a humility shaped by the gospel allows us to be honest, allows us to look for help from one another in our family here, from God himself. The Samaritan exhibits a life worthy of the gospel, not because he does a nice thing, but because instead of seeking to justify himself and depend upon his own goodness, he trusts in God. And we can live lives worthy of the gospel by being a people who constantly point to the goodness of God in their lives. A people who come to the foot of the cross knowing our need for Jesus, knowing that nothing that we can do will ever earn us life, but rejoicing in the grace that God has shown in giving it to us. So, so if you hear from this today that you need to go out and do better, then, then I failed as a communicator. Because we should be going from here in awe and wonder at the sweetness of God's grace in our lives. We should be going from here seeing how he alone can give us rest, how he is transforming us, and to rejoice in that. In a minute we are going to sing, but can we just get the words of the first um, verse up for a second? There's going to be four slides here. Read this out with me. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. There's bound to be people here who are really joyous. They're just in a really joyous time of life. And others who are really hurting right now. People who have their life all together and who are really succeeding at everything they do. And others where everything just seems to be falling apart and they just can't keep their heads above water. The good news of the gospel, the, the truth that I pray warms our hearts this morning, is that our hope of righteousness is not in any of that. It's not where we should be looking to hope. It's not in us. It's in him. And he is reaching out his hands to us now. So will you accept that grace? Will you allow yourself to be transformed? This is our hope of eternal life. So let's stand and let's sing it out now. Not in me, Lord but only in you.